Hello, my friends, and welcome to the 50th episode of Strange Origins. While the number 50 isn't too big of a deal when it comes to other podcasts, I have to say it's a pretty big deal for me. I started this project with the simple idea that it would be a great excuse for me to keep learning. This was especially true when it came to the subjects that I was interested in, but that I didn't exactly have an excuse to waste time on. While in college, I really enjoyed the fact that, for a few years at least, I was gifted this precious time in which I could dedicate myself to studying history and art and everything in between. When I graduated, it was hard to come to terms with the fact that Unless I found one of those elusive, highly sought-after jobs in the humanities department, work and money would end up taking priority over everything else. So when I decided to begin writing Strange Origins, I finally felt like I could invest my time and my effort into something that I was actually really interested in, and that would benefit me in the long run. At the same time, though, when I first started this series, I didn't realize how much time it would take. How much time it takes to read as much as I do, to write, to rewrite, and rewrite again. And how many tech or logistical problems would come up when recording or editing. But somehow, I've made it this far. Despite what seemed like every complication in the world happening at some point. I'm here with all of you guys, and for that, I'm really grateful. Now, I've calculated that it takes me around 20 hours to make a single episode by myself, if not more. And now that I've made it to 50 episodes, that means that I've completed around 1,000 hours of time into this wonderful project. Working it in between several different jobs and other responsibilities, Strange Origins has become something that I'm proud of in terms of both the work that I've put into it and also the time that I've invested into myself and my own education. So far, I've accomplished more than I dreamed I would in the past few years. I've answered more questions of mine than I thought I would, and I'm really happy that I made it so that I can share what I've learned with you guys. One of those subjects that I find myself drawn into time and time again is conspiracy theories. I love hearing the strange connections that people can make between the mundane and the extraordinary, and how not often, but sometimes, they can somehow actually be correct about what they believe. Granted, that doesn't happen 99.9% of the time, but either way, I love hearing a good conspiracy. An interesting quote I read concerning the importance of conspiracy theories from a historian's point of view is that, quote, evidence suggests that the aversive feelings that people experience when in crisis, fear, uncertainty, and the feeling of being out of control, stimulate a motivation to make sense of the situation increasing the likelihood of perceiving conspiracies in social situations." So to paraphrase, conspiracy theories are so interesting because they are a heightened reaction to real-life events. And how humans react to events, even if we jump to outrageous conclusions, 
is important. This is because one man's crazy theory, at least in this day and age, can spread to a mass of other people via things like gossiping, book deals, or in our case, podcasts. The spread of information has an effect on us, whether the information is <laughs> bonkers or not, and can change our history and culture in surprisingly meaningful ways. For this particular episode, I wanted to narrow in on one of the original conspiracies, and the group who are said to be involved in some way with a lot of other conspiracies I enjoy talking about, and that is the Men in Black. If you aren't familiar with these men, or maybe aliens, depending on who you talk to, they can best be explained as mysterious government agents. They were originally associated with UFOs or unidentified flying objects, but soon came to symbolize a general aura of secrecy and threats when it came to any kind of supernatural story. Men in Black are, in their classic description, a grouping of two or more men dressed in black suits, wearing bowler hats, and who primarily drive a black Cadillac. Other details used to describe them that aren't as common are that they will be completely hairless men, devoid of even eyelashes. But despite these general portraits, something I didn't realize when I began my research was that the idea of a man in black doesn't necessarily have to mean a man in a black suit. Instead, it can simply just be a term applied to a person of any description, wearing a variety of different clothing. The most important part of recognizing a man in black is that they are a person or human form who has been lurking around the site of a reported UFO sighting and who has communicated with witnesses in an authoritarian manner. Unlike a lot of Strange Origins episodes where I do my best to research subjects that date back thousands of years, the history of Men in Black is pretty short and recent, but nonetheless pretty complex. On June 27, 1947, a man named Harold Dahl was in Puget Sound, which is in northwestern Washington state, when he reported seeing what he described as six donut-shaped objects flying above his boat. Dahl was in this part of the world on a conservation mission, attempting to gather logs. Some stories state that he was with his son, and others state that he was working with another man. The one thing each version is firm about was the fact that he was also working with his dog. According to his story, the donut shapes, quote, began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of very lightweight metal, fluttered to the earth, end quote. While the other worker only suffered an injury to his arm, his dog, unfortunately, didn't survive the falling pieces of metal. Something Harold was able to do, according to his version of the story, was take some pictures of the objects with his camera, which he was able to show to his supervisor, a man named Fred Chrisman, who will become important later on in the story. The next morning, 
Harold reported being visited by a mysterious man who was wearing a black suit. After meeting, they went to a diner where they talked about Dahl's experience. The thing that concluded the meeting was the man in the black suit warning Dahl that if he spoke of what he saw, that he would regret it. This incident, called the Maury Island Incident, was a story that would be repeated by other UFO enthusiasts for decades to come. Something that gives researchers and conspiracy theorists alike pause about this event was the fact that the newspaper had just recently reported a similar incident near Mount Rainier, Washington, which was only about 100 miles away. This other incident concerned a civilian pilot, Kenneth Arnold, who claimed to have witnessed a string of nine similar UFOs traveling over 1,000 miles an hour in the distance. This sighting, which was reported nationwide, and the first report of a UFO post-World War II, is attributed as being the first sighting to use the term flying saucer or flying disc as a description for these mysterious objects. It was also, interestingly enough, within a month of when the crash landing at Roswell, New Mexico was supposed to have occurred. The fact that this happened within such a short amount of time isn't a big surprise to me, as getting a story out was probably a top priority for those selling newspapers or reporting news in other ways at the time. Just like with today's fast-paced news cycles, whatever is on people's minds at the time is what will most likely sell a story, even if those stories are semi or fully fabricated. The two men who were said to have seen the UFO at Maury Island were said to have been investigated further by several different authorities. When the FBI stepped in, they determined by their own methods that the sighting was a hoax, mentioning that Fred Chrisman, Dahl's superior, liked to tell wild tales. According to a letter he'd written a year ago to a publication called Amazing Stories, he had, quote, fought evil creatures underground in Burma. This was a pretty understandable reaction as Amazing Stories was a 1940s pulp magazine that was a quote, outlet for fantasy, science fiction, and fringe claims, end quote. This was enough for the FBI to throw out any type of corroboration to Harold Dahl's story that Chrisman had disclosed. Something else following the Mount Rainier incident, and the subsequent string of copycat stories I just talked about, was a book titled They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Published in 1956, the book was the first piece to suggest that the government knew more about these mysterious flying objects than they let on, which was a pretty big claim. The book told the story of a short period of time when the author Gray Barker was involved with a group called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. This group was mostly just a club for civilians who wanted to investigate more into the strange events that had been happening concerning UFOs for the past decade. The founder of the IFSB was a man named Albert K. Bender. A year after starting the fairly successful group, it was shut down. Something members noticed that was strange following the dissolving of the group was the publication of a few sentences in their final newsletter. 
It stated that, quote, The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source, end quote. The book then went on to describe how Albert Bender was silenced by mysterious men in black suits. Bender described his experience with these agents, saying that they had visited him at his home and communicated with him telepathically. After receiving a metal disc and instructions from these men, he reported feeling like he was transported somewhere, where the men told him information about UFOs. Following that, Bender was unable to eat for three days and suffered headaches. After stating he would reveal the information that the agents revealed to him, or in some versions of the stories, the information that he figured out on his own, and was then warned by the men to not divulge, he published a book called Flying Saucers and the Three Men. While the plot of this novel is a bit too strange and confusing for even me to recount in this episode, suffice it to say that it read more like science fiction than anything that could have realistically happened, even for a story about men in black and UFOs. The book actually made bestsellers lists for a short time in 1956, and according to people who have studied the history of these types of conspiracies, this was the point in time when the term Men in Black became a household name in the United States. This is also thought to be the point in time when conspiracists stopped believing that Men in Black were involved with any type of human government, such as the FBI or Air Force, and instead began to theorize that they could be aliens themselves, watching out for their own kind. Other historians believe that this Men in Black conspiracy was later highly influenced by a man named George Adamski and his story of an encounter with FBI agents. Adamski was a Polish-American author who considered himself to be what ufologists refer to as a contactee, or someone who aliens will exclusively communicate with when they come to Earth. Adamski famously reported that the government supported his claims that he was a type of consulate to aliens. This is when the story turned into a he-said-she-said said type of situation between Adamski and the government. When the FBI heard about his claims, they sent three men to try to get him to stop spreading misinformation, to put it lightly. After a few more incidents where he continued to tell reporters that he had the government's support in his claims, he stated that the FBI, quote, warned him to keep quiet. It was this incident that is said to have inspired the entire idea of Men in Black being involved with the government. While the government warned him to stop, it simply just made George seem like a person of interest in the entire situation. The more the government denied involvement, the more suspicious it made them look, according to ufologists. Somehow, it was all to George Adomsky's benefit that he kept lying about his affiliations, as in 1959 he was invited to the palace of Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, who seemed to have had a great interest in anything to do with aliens or UFOs. It was even reported in Time magazine that, quote, once again, Queen Juliana's weakness for the preternatural has landed her back in the headlines. 
She had invited to the palace a crackpot from California, who numbered among his friends men from Mars, Venus, and other solar system suburbs." End quote. Following the 1940s and 50s, the term men in black was easily a phrase that was interchangeable with the idea of paranoia. The particular problem with the idea of men in black is that this conspiracy looped back into itself, feeding fear with paranoia and paranoia with fear. In the 1970s through the 1990s, conspiracy theorists would often use men in black in their stories in order to spread distrust and as an explanation as to why certain information couldn't be disclosed to the public. It really was a genius solution. If you wanted to sell something, such as a book which promised information beyond your wildest dreams, you needed only to invent a group of men whose only purpose was to keep you from sharing that information. That way you could weave a story that you could sell without ever actually having the information that garnered people's attention in the first place. One of the more famous ufologists, John Keel, wrote in his book The Mothman Prophecies about his experiences in the mid-70s in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. He wrote in his book that he had several run-ins with what he called men in black. Going around town to talk to witnesses about the Mothman sightings, he said that it felt as if he was always being watched. During his interviews with people in their homes, he said that the family he was interviewing would get phone calls, with no one on the other side of the call, which Keel felt was odd because his whereabouts and intentions weren't known by anyone but himself, yet the mysterious empty phone calls persisted. One woman he interviewed, Linda Scarberry, was one of the four original people to have reported seeing the Mothman which is most likely a subject I'll do a fuller episode on at a later date. Linda reported getting strange phone calls and was afterward visited by men who she said asked her questions about her experience with the Mothman. She claimed that these men tried to scare her into not telling anyone about her experience witnessing the cryptid. Something she noticed that would later become a very important piece of information when it came to future conspiracy theorist stories, was that the men in black would follow her around in a black Cadillac. This car would later become iconic and would be used in stories about the mysterious men in black for decades to come. The most famous version of Men in Black was the movie of the same name that was released in 1997. But something I bet you didn't know was that the movie was inspired by the short-lived comic book series, also titled The Men in Black. Something I didn't know about the comic books was just how different they were from both their origin and their spin-offs. In the comic books, the pair of men in black didn't just investigate UFO claims, but any number of supernatural threats, including zombies, demons, and werewolves. This was because the author, quote, thought UFOs every issue might get boring after a while." End quote. Men in Black only published six comic books, which is a very short run for what soon became a pretty popular multi-million dollar movie franchise, and which thrust the term Men in Black into popular usage in the 21st century. After reading about Men in Black in depth, I feel as though I've taken a masterclass on storytelling. 
It seems everyone had a story to tell in this episode. Whether it was a comic book, a science fiction novel, a tell-all in the newspaper, or a larger-than-life story. Even after reading all the fiction woven throughout, it's still hard for me to believe that there isn't some sort of truth to the idea of the Men in Black. Based on everything I've learned so far, it's most likely that the real agents sent to cover up real unexplained phenomena weren't as suspicious as the Men in Black in these stories. Personally, I believe there's something out there, even if it's not little green men with giant heads. And it would be dumb of me to think that governments, from any of our countries, or from, you know, outer space, wouldn't be willing to cover that up for either our protection or their gain in some way. And in order for that to work, there needs to be agents willing to work towards that goal. Or at least that's what makes sense in my head. At the same time, a good story will always sell, and money will usually take precedence over the truth. I think that's been proven time and time again when it comes to the media. I guess in the end, I can't help but repeat the words that Albert K. Bender was told by Men in Black before he dissolved the International Flying Saucer Bureau, which is that, quote, we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious, end quote. Thank you so much for listening to my 50th episode of Strange Origins, my friends. Keep safe out there, don't believe everything you read, and always look up at the sky whenever possible. Oh, and don't forget to keep it strange. Bye, guys.